Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of MedTech POV, a podcast brought to you by AdvaMed, the world's largest trade association for medical technology companies. I'm your host, Scott Whitaker, the president and CEO of AdvaMed. Here at MedTech POV Podcast, we're giving you an up-close look at what's going on inside the medical technology community. Tune in for each episode for conversations with today's leaders, both inside and outside of our industry, about business, policy, and current events. Today, we're pleased to have with us former FDA Commissioner, Dr. Stephen Hahn. Welcome, Dr. Hahn. It's great to have you with us on the MedTech POV podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Scott, it's a real honor and pleasure to be here. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity. It's fun to have you. You've had quite an experience in the last year being the FDA commissioner, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But for those of you who don't know you beyond just being FDA commissioner, tell us a little bit about your journey. Uh, Where'd you grow up and why'd you become a medical oncologist and what led you to the FDA eventually? Yes, Scott. Um, so so I um I grew up in Pennsylvania and the suburbs of Philadelphia. And, you know, my my parents emphasized education and service to others. And as a result of that, I became really interested in medicine from an early age. And, you know, I was one of those kids that decided early on and didn't ever veer from it and consider other options that I wanted to be a doctor. And so took the opportunities that I had, neither my parents went to college and you know, was very fortunate to get into college and then go to medical school and, and be trained and then have the opportunity to serve patients and became fascinated by oncology. I trained at the University of California, San Francisco in the early 80s. And of course, that was the beginning of the AIDS de- epidemic and UCSF was sort of the ground central, um, but really saw what it meant to actually be service to people in needs. But became fascinated in oncology because if you think about the sort of history of medicine, where we were with infectious disease, although it's ironic, we, we now have COVID, but a, a couple hundred years ago, and where we were with oncology in the early 80s, 70s, et cetera, and now where we are with neuro-oncology, very similar. Big, steep hills to climb, a lot of unmet medical need. The science of cancer fascinated me, and how you could help people who were in desperate need really appealed to me. So I became a medical oncologist. I I spent time in the laboratory at the National Cancer Institute and the medical oncology branch, and then decided also to become dual certified and and became a medical oncologist. So did that also at at NCI. Ultimately ended up at the University of Pennsylvania on the faculty and and practiced medical and radiation oncology for a while, and then stuck to radiation oncology where I treated lung and sarcoma patients and um, became chair of the department. And after about nine years of chair, I decided that I wanted a, a different challenge, and I joined the team at MD Anderson, which is just, as you know, a terrific organization. We had quite the challenges there in terms of installation of a medical record, which exposed a lot of underlying process and operational issues. And our president stepped down. So, uh, you know, at that point, I became the chief operating officer and ultimately the chief medical executive. So really cut my teeth on finance operations, uh, leadership of complex, large organizations at MD Anderson, at the same time, taking care of patients and just loving the science and, and what MD Anderson did for patients. And then the opportunity FDA came in. And so, you know, the rest is kind of history. And most people know that story, but it was a, quite an honor and an opportunity to serve our country. And I'm, I'm really happy to have done it. Yeah, I want to talk to you more about your FDA experience, particularly in light of what you went through with COVID. But, but before we do that, can we jump back to cancer for a second? Because 
I'm interested in your take. We've made so much progress in cancer research, in cancer therapy, in cancer prevention across the board in many different areas. I remember a conversation I had with Andy von Eschenbach. It would have been back maybe 2003, 2004, when he was going to take over the role as FDA commissioner coming out of NCI. He was really hopeful at the time that we were moving to a place where cancer would become much more of a chronic disease than a death sentence. And let me ask you from your perspective, how close are we to that right now? How much have things changed over the course of the last 15 and 20 years in the cancer space for patients? Well, I won't, don't want to be too over-optimistic about this, but I have to tell you we've made substantial progress in the war against cancer. Not everybody agrees with that, but you need to look no further than the American Cancer Society's data on survival in aggregate in response to or in response to, to being diagnosed with cancer. And it's very clear that for many of the major diseases in cancer that we've made substantial progress and turned it to some extent into a more chronic disease. I mean, think about melanoma and immunotherapy. We now have folks who respond to immunotherapy, the immune response or the immune modulators. And what happens with many of those is that whereas they would have died within six to 12 months, they're living seven, 10, 12 years. And we see that in lung cancer, maybe not quite as long, but there are, clearly have been advances. And it's really been the understanding of the uh, genetics of cancer, the human genome project, but also how do we really approach the diseases, not in the way we used to. This is lung cancer, this is breast cancer, this is sarcoma, but really understanding the molecular, we call it pathogenesis, but really the molecular drivers of the cancer. And then how do you target that it has been revolutionary, and it's been integrated in our more traditional ways that we approach cancer. And so I see there's great opportunities there in neurodegenerative diseases as well, where there's huge unmet medical needs. Yeah, it's not a scientific study for sure, but it seems to me, just my personal experience, that more and more friends or colleagues or people that I've worked with are recovering from cancer than are dying from cancer, right? And while not a scientific experiment or a clinical trial per se, it just feels like we're making progress in a non-scientific way. And it sounds like you feel that way too, which is really encouraging. I do. And, and there's, I think the other advances that we've seen and have helped with screening are on the diagnostic side, but also the medical device side. I think that's really important as well, because how we integrate those into current molecular therapies is really important. But again, what, what really supports your contention here are the American Cancer Society data on, on survival in the yeah, U.S. Very, very encouraging. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us on that. Let's transition to your time as FDA commissioner. I talked to you before you got into the job, Steve, and we talked about, do you really want to do this, right? You knew it was going to be a tough task just to run the FDA, but I don't think anyone knew how tough the task was because you got hit with COVID. When did you realize, and remind the audience, your timeline for becoming FDA commissioner and then the timeline for COVID hitting the country as well? Yeah, so I was sworn in on December 17th, 2019, and we started to hear about COVID in early January with respect to the outbreak in Wuhan in China. And then, obviously, the Secretary of Health and Human Services declared a public health emergency um, and we began to see our first cases in February, probably the, toward the latter end of February, although now in retrospect, there were probably cases in the U.S. much, much sooner. And I think at FDA, it really hit us in mid to late January. And, you know, I had spent my first six weeks trying to get to know the agency. I mean, everyone does the same thing when they come into an organization, meet the people, understand the culture. How are you going to operate in that culture? Because if you think you're going to go in and change a culture, 
that's a recipe for you know causing problems and not getting the job done. Establish some priorities for the agency, but then once COVID came, we realized we really had to be on top of it that we would be part of the epicenter of the COVID response because medical products would be needed. And so in late January, we set up an incident command structure and an executive oversight of that incident command structure. So it really was late January that we kind of put all the pieces together from our perspective and knew that we'd have to be prepared for this. We started talking about how we would move resources around, particularly people resources and review resources. We had no idea what we would see. And, you know, we saw a doubling of our workload over this past year. CDRH, which is of particular importance to members of Avamed, was probably early on the most significantly hit with EUAs and with the need to assess the supply chain. And so a, really a tremendous amount of work and people working 24-7 at the agency. And of course, that continued, although in varying degrees throughout the year, but but really that was when we first recognized it and when it hit us that we were going to have to come together as a team and having only been in charge of the agency for six weeks, you know, really took coming together as a leadership team and bringing everyone together to, to address this for the nation. And I am very, very proud of what the agency has done. Yeah, a remarkable accomplishment under your leadership there. I had a conversation with General Mattis on this podcast a few weeks ago. We talked about the challenges associated with crisis management and leadership during crisis, uh, both going into, Steve, and then coming out of it. FDA still hasn't come out of it. But as you went into it, now in hindsight, were there a couple decisions that you made that you think really made the difference in your ability to respond not only to the crisis, but continue to operate the base business of FDA, which is so essential as well. Yeah, a couple things. One is, I think it was really important for an agency like FDA to ask the appropriate questions, but to understand what the culture is around, how decisions are made, and the real importance of the expertise of the career scientists at FDA, and gaining their trust working early on to acknowledge the fact that they had the expertise to make these decisions. And my job was to, of course, question and ask why decisions were made, but to really enable that expertise, I think went a long way because I'm sure the general would have told you this or did tell you this, trust and trusting the people you work for in the middle of battle. If you're a disruptive force that's trying to turn things on its head, and you don't trust the people that you're working with, it's going to be very hard to work as a team. So I think that early on, the recognition and the working closely with the leadership, we brought the leadership together in a way to allow them to help solve problems that were cross-cutting across the agency. And that leadership group met regularly during the pandemic. And I think that helped us at times of crisis. Yeah. We dealt a lot with the FDA, Steve, directly with you, but also with uh, Dr. Sheridan at CDRH. And I assume you recall the number, but the volume of EUAs that went through the FDA, not just in the diagnostic space, which was a huge number, right? But in other areas as well, ventilators, sterilization processes, the list goes on and on, was huge. And it was a remarkable accomplishment. I think anyone would agree with that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Jeff and his team were awesome. And can you remember we all the personal protective equipment issues, the N95s, you know, the importation of some of these masks and respirators from abroad and the issues of trying to vet with what we were being told was accurate. I mean, this covered the entire spectrum of what FDA did. And, you know, I at the time, 
I didn't really think about what a challenge it was. But in retrospect, looking at the data and what was accomplished and how hard people worked, it's amazing. And I, I think, you know, the leadership like Jeff and others, Peter Marks, really uh, go a long way toward telling the story of why that occurred and it occurred in the way that it did. Yeah, history is going to be very kind to you, I believe, in that respect, and also to the entire FDA group. Uh, Remarkable what you've accomplished. Let's turn to COVID more broadly, if we can, for a minute. You were not only FDA commissioner, but you were also a member of the White House Task Force on the COVID response. We're oftentimes called on to be a public uh, figure in many ways, Steve, which you typically wouldn't see from the FDA officials in the White House and daily meetings. Can you reflect on that a little bit? Give us a sense of what that was like in the rooms as a part of the White House task force when you were trying to manage this crisis. So, you know, from my perspective, since I was new to government, it certainly was aware that that the FDA commissioner wouldn't normally have uh, this sort of role, but also recognized when the vice president asked me to join the task force, that that was a recognition of how important FDA was going to be to ensure the safety and effectiveness of medical products. So, to me, that was sort of a stamp and a recognition of, of, of that, of the important role that FDA would play. You know, in the room, it was medical professionals, folks from, you know, across the industry in terms of national security, in terms of economics, all together as a multidisciplinary team, which was the right thing to do, because after all, COVID just didn't affect the public health of America. It affected you know, national security, food security, so many different areas. So a cross-cutting approach was important. I very much admired the vice president's leadership. There were a lot of challenges, but that, that was a team that really worked hard to try to understand the pandemic. And, and I, I'll highlight a few things, Scott, that I think are important. One is there was a substantial knowledge deficit about COVID-19. From early on. And, you know, I'm going to relate this as being a doctor. You're in the emergency room. You have a limited amount of information, but you have a really sick person in front of you and you're trying to save his or her life. So you act upon the information you have. Now, everybody wishes we had more information, but we didn't. And a doctor doesn't always. And you make those decisions and then you revise those decisions as you go on. We can take masks as an example. We can take therapeutics. We can take diagnostics, et cetera. All examples of You know, as information came in, we revised what we did. And in a political environment, observation that I have, Scott, is that it's not the easiest thing in the world to admit that you need to take a new direction because often political opponents or or others will jump on that, the press, et cetera. And so to some extent, the political environment did not make, and I'm not complaining, did not make the job easier of trying to manage a crisis because in a in a medical emergency, you want to have all oars rowing in the same direction and understanding that communication, bilateral direction flow of information, and revising decisions when necessary is absolutely important. So that's one observation. The other one is I really feel like the docs on the task force really had to come up to speed so quickly on the data as it came in, and it came in fast and furious. And Bob Redfield, Deb Burks, and Tony Fauci were all there as infectious disease experts. So there was really great expertise to try to help sift through the data as it came in. Yeah, you mentioned the vice president. I I remember back uh, early in the crisis, it always felt like when he stepped to the podium, he was a bit of a calming force. And I don't know, Steve, if that was the same way it was inside the room or not, but did that perception carry uh, behind the media room as well? 
No question about it. The vice president wanted and encouraged a very vigorous debate about the issues. He is very respectful. And as you presented your point of view, he tried to incorporate it into the decision making. I was very impressed with his approach to that. And it definitely carried in. He, he's very calm and cool and collected um, in crisis situations. Yeah. And then if you don't mind reflecting on the president a little bit, too, I mean, he, he was obviously at the top of government at that time and received a lot of criticism, received some praise as well. It was at times kind of choppy from from those of us sitting on the outside. What was your relationship like with the president? How often did you engage with him through this process? So my relationship with the president was was very good. We spoke frequently, sometimes several times a week, because obviously FDA issues were important. The president is an action-oriented person, and he likes to see results, and he likes for obstacles to be removed from getting those results. And I think as we reflect back, and history will, on the development of a vaccine and therapeutics, the president's encouragement to remove red tape and to find ways to expedite development of medical products really was very impactful. When you think about from identification of a virus to 11 months later, having an application for an emergency use authorization in a 44,000 person trial with a vaccine that's 95% effective, that is more than a medical home run. It's close to a medical miracle. And I think the leadership of the president was really important in terms of pushing all of us to get to that point. I don't have the perception that you do from the outside, so it's difficult for me to say because I had the inside perspective at the time. But it was very clear that the, the, the president was impatient for us to get results. Now, at FDA, what's really important is not only getting the result and getting to the right result in terms of safety and effectiveness, but getting there in a way that respects the process. And that process is time-tested. It's very important. It can be compressed, as it was for all medical products and vaccines, but the process has to be followed, and we can't take shortcuts. And I think there was a challenge there in communication as well as understanding of those issues with respect to FDA. Did you did you feel like, Steve, at times that you were getting too much political pressure, either from the White House staff or from the president directly, that made it more difficult for you to get to a decision? So early on, I, I didn't consider um, any of it political pressure. And I know that term is often used. And, you know, I'd say for the first four to five months, I didn't consider it political pressure because we were in the middle of a war. The pressure came from responding to a medical emergency that were, was killing people around the globe. So the pressure I felt was to really try to expedite things as much as possible from an agency perspective and to work with the team on the task force to get things done. And there was complete alignment with that we need to move as quickly as we possibly can, but we need to get it right. Understanding that if we had data that suggested that the decision needed to be revised, that we would. And you do the best you can with the information. As time went on, and you know, I don't know if it's aligned with the political calendar. I had the suspicion that it was in the election calendar. There was a lot more political pressure from a variety of different quarters. But I have to be clear and explicit about this. The president was uh, always good to me. He never expressed direct political pressure at all. Clearly wanted things done in an expedited manner. But commander in chief, and he was very much focused on trying to save lives. Yeah. You had two specific episodes that I, I think would have been very hard to manage. One was the issue around hydroxychloroquine, right? Where it seemed like there was so much information 
not a lot of clinical data, but a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest it may be helpful and people felt it wouldn't be helpful. That was one you had to deal with. And you, then you had the issue around the plasma as well. Talk about those two incidences, starting with hydroxy. How hard was it to manage that right in a context where you didn't have complete information? So that's that's really interesting. And I'll tell you, hydroxychloroquine um, is a drug that's been on the market for years, I think 20, 30 plus years, used to, to treat people with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, a very good safety profile um, and has been a good and effective drug for years. When there became reports, some of them published, or at least one published, some not, that hydroxychloroquine had sort of test tube activity against COVID and then might have clinical activity against COVID, there became an increase in use of this. And then like mask wearing, like hydroxychloroquine, like other things, it entered the political sphere. And there was a lot of publicity about it. And what we began to see was pressure on the supply chain around hydroxychloroquine. And you make a really important point. We did not have clinical data that were definitive. So we needed to make sure that there was drug for people who had approved indications. We needed to make sure that there was drug available for clinical trials. And then because FDA does not regulate the practice of medicine, we need to make sure that there was drug also in the system because people were prescribing it off-label. Now, FDA doesn't say you can do that. It doesn't say you can't do that. We want you to have the data as a provider to make that decision. And I always contended that this was to be made in the privacy and confidence of a doctor-patient relationship. So given those three needs, at the time, we had a lot of donated drug to the stockpile. But by statute, we were advised by counsel at HHS that that drug could not enter the system and be under the PREP Act unless we had either an EUA or an IND. Janet Woodcock and her team at Cedar made that decision. I completely supported that decision. And it was a very pragmatic decision. And it was the best decision we could make at the time with the data we had. As we learned more about hydroxychloroquine, and ultimately as the recovery trial was published that showed it wasn't a benefit, we revoked that EUA. And then we got another EUA application, which we, we denied, and that's public knowledge. And, and that was all based upon the accumulating data. So getting drug into the system, particularly for those who needed it for approved indications and for those clinical trials, so that we could have the data and actually not make this a you know, he said, she said sort of discussion, but really about the data in clinical science, that was really important in my opinion. Yeah. And then plasma gave a challenge for you as well. Felt like one of those situations, Steve, that you got pulled into a press conference and sort of asked to say something and it, it didn't come out maybe the way you intended. And it was also a situation that struck me, like with hydroxychloroquine, that you were sort of learning by doing at the time and trying to make all the right decisions and inform people. But every word you said was picked apart and questioned during that time. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sort of what you, what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, well, and rightly so, it was, was picked apart. I mean, again, my analogy is a doctor. Everything you say in the room with the patient is going to be scrutinized by the patient because it's a life and death situation. So I completely own my misstatements regarding this. The underlying data were good and the underlying data were right, but I clearly should have said that this was a relative benefit and I didn't. And that distinction is really important because it relates to the magnitude of the benefit. What I think was lost in this is that our team had spent so much time looking at the data. And again, we made the decision based upon real-world evidence that we had accumulated in a very large um, expanded access program at the Mayo Clinic. 
We were up against a deadline to get the decision made because that program was going to change and we had we were going to end. And we had data to suggest that it might be a benefit. And so we met the statutory definition of an EUA. But that entire episode around the press conference, I think, detracted from that. We subsequently had randomized clinical trial that supported the use of uh, plasma. Not everybody agrees with it, but it is a safe and potentially effective therapy. So I know the agency continues to stand behind um, that decision, although it's been modified and revised as we've gotten more data. And that's exactly the way it should be. So I, I think the lesson learned in there is take your time, be careful about every word that you speak, but really, I think, stand behind the data and the science. And even when folks are taking shots about that, really stick with the science and the career scientists. And I think Peter Marks and his team did a really good job. It was tough. And, you know, there were black eyes that were, that were gotten. But at the end of the day, I think the right decision was made for the American people. And I do believe that, that plasma had a role to play, although maybe less so now with other therapies available. Yeah. You're, you're very generous in your comments and reflection. I, I also thought at the time there was a bit of a rush, right, to try to figure out if you said something wrong and then to make an issue about it, right? That always seemed to me to be different from the point that was trying to be made, which is we knew ha- we have a new therapy that may be helpful, right? And it seemed to, it seemed to be an example of how hot every issue was politically, right? Uh, almost regardless of what you said, you're going to have an article run for and against it, right? Uh, because of whatever reason. And um, I would assume, Steve, you felt that too, but maybe you were just able to manage your way through it without it impacting your day-to-day routine. Well, you know, you would not believe me if I told you it didn't impact me, but, you know, I had an agency to run. We had a public health crisis, And I'll tell you, my experience as a cancer doctor and treating cancer patients really helped me because keeping your eye on the ball for the benefit of the patient, and let's face it, FDA's patient was the American public or is the American public, was really important. And at the end of the day, it wasn't about me personally. And if I had to take shots and, you know, listen, in medicine, how you get better, how you build trust is to acknowledge when you made a mistake. And that's not a Washington thing. In fact, it's the opposite in Washington. And so I I think one of the unfortunate facts, and you hit on it, highlighted of the entire year with with respect to the response to COVID, was the fact that it was, in fact, also a political environment, a presidential election year. And, you know, there was no side which didn't attempt to capitalize on a mistake to publicize that for whatever motivation. And it's unfortunate because in a public health emergency, what you want to do is exactly the opposite. Share information admit when you need to make a course correction, um, and always try to do the right thing. So you're right. I have to tell you, and I will stand behind this forever, the agency and I always felt like we were making the right choice and making it upon science and data. And it might not have been spun that way by um, external folks and, and forces, but, but that's truly the way that it was. And again, I'm very proud of the agency's response. I think it was around that time, Steve, too, you started to get some criticism about the speed at which you were moving on the vaccine and whether or not that was politically motivated or whether or not it was science motivated. You you were very clear in your public statements uh, on that. And then coming back to a question I asked earlier, did you feel the political pressure on that, too? Uh, no question about that. I mean, whether it was social media, whether it was direct conversations, and it was from all sides, the agency and I felt it. So certainly the plasma and often how it was reported 
led to people to think that there was undue pressure on the agency to make decisions that weren't based upon science and data. And that was a hill for us to climb. And and I think we did climb it with respect to vaccines. There was also the fact that there was a presidential election. And many people felt that the timing of any decision we made vis-a-vis you know, the November election would have a substantial impact. We had to keep our eye on the ball, which is when the data are ready and when we feel comfortable with the science, we're going to pull the trigger on a decision. And we cannot allow a fixed date and time to influence our decision making. And we didn't. And believe me, on both sides of the equation, we heard this. This is not just red state, blue state. This is you know, everybody feeling that pressure and making comments about it. But again, the agency, and, and we'll take vaccines as an example, the data had to mature from the randomized clinical trial. One of the reasons starting in June, we were very clear about what we needed to see from a data perspective was that we wanted to provide assurance that we weren't going to change that, that we were going to follow our process. And if you look at the history of vaccine authorizations or approvals at the at the FDA, four months, right? After looking at an application, we compressed that to three weeks or less, a remarkable accomplishment by the vaccine division and, and by CBER. But the bottom line is we couldn't cut corners. We had to do the same job we always did of looking line by line in the data. That was our commitment. But that's where the pressure came, because as you know, the UK authorized a vaccine before we did. And that was an enormous amount of pressure. And the question was, given all the resources that the US have, why was the UK first? And I didn't see it as a first versus second. I saw it as we have to do our due diligence. We have to assure people that the vaccine is safe and effective to the best of our ability and then be transparent about it. You know, almost like a political novel, Steve, amazingly, in an election season with vaccine questions lingering, a number of different therapeutic questions hanging over the head of everyone, what worked, what didn't, President of the United States gets COVID and ends up at Walter Reed in the hospital. An amazing moment, right? Reflect on that if you can. Did, did you interact with the president while he was in the hospital about vaccines or his, his treatment and how he would recover? I didn't interact with the president during his hospitalization, but, but I did interact with the president after. I mean, he was very generous with information about his medical condition and, and what he had received. And his purpose for doing that was to really inform us and although one case of COVID, albeit in our commander in chief, is potentially instructive, it doesn't form the database about which you can make a decision regarding an EUA. So um, the president, uh, again, very generous with that information. But, you know, I think his response to the therapies he received did bring substantial pressure to bear to the subsequent applications we received, and, and particularly around monoclonal antibody therapy. Nonetheless, we needed to make the right decision for the American people, and we did that based upon the collected data. Let's transition out of COVID for a few minutes and talk about the FDA, maybe a little bit into the future, away from the EUA process and into day-to-day -day management of the agency. I think one of the unfortunate realities, Steve, is that as a result of COVID and the tremendous work that FDA did, we're starting now to see some backlog, right? And companies are with products that patients need, innovations that need to move are slowed down as a result of it for good reason. We understand that, right? I think a lot of us now are questioning, what can we do collectively in a public-private way 
to help FDA get beyond the backlog and bit, get back to normal business and the amazing progress you were making before. Do you have any thoughts for us on that? Yes, I do. I do, Scott. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. It was inevitable that uh, a doubling of our workload with the same workforce and the need to follow our rigorous procedures was going to lead to some backlogs and particularly the inspection issue and how it was difficult from a public health perspective to do the sort of inspections that we had done previously. I think in those challenges are substantial opportunities. And I'm, I'm going to refer this audience to the FDA's pandemic recovery and preparedness plan, what we called PrEP, which was issued in, in mid-January. And that was something that um, I had asked the agency starting in April to begin what I thought would be a very instructive and useful look at our response. So we engaged a, a third party to do that. And um, over the ensuing months, we looked at this and, and really sort of it filled three domains. But if I can just be more granular about it, one was our process of engaging industry and how what we learned during the, the, the crisis in that active and ongoing engagement, rolling reviews, providing sort of very speedy feedback without all of the information, very helpful on speeding along product innovation and something that really should be considered moving forward. Issue number two was around strategic communications. Let's be less of a black box and let's make sure that we are as open and transparent as we can be, of course, protecting confidential commercial information, particularly around the EUA process, but I think that bleeds into a, approvals as well. And then finally, revising and looking at our inspection process. How can we do that in a COVID and a post-COVID era, keep people safe, but at the same time do our due diligence? And in that report, we talk about ways that we are going to I think, move forward in that. I believe, in answer directly to your question, that this only happens with active engagement with the private sector. So big takeaway for Steve Hahn from COVID was that we wouldn't be in the position we are with therapeutics and vaccines without the private sector. Huge heroes of COVID-19. We need to honor the private sector. We need to respect the private sector, but we need the regulatory oversight as well. We need that balance. But I think the sort of engagement that we saw during COVID over medical products, over protective equipment, ventilators, vaccines, that ongoing and very efficient uh, back and forth, that needs to continue. I think we can get beyond this backlog by doing exactly that. And I'm encouraged to hear you say that. So let me ask you a question of uh, if you were a med tech. CEO. And Steve, your your experience now being an oncologist, running a large, two large hospitals, now having been the FDA commissioner as well, you've been through the process of a 510K and I think a PMA probably on both sides of it, right? Upon reflection of all that experience, right? If you're sitting in the seat of a medtech CEO today, and you're facing the FDA with a new product, uh, a pending approval, what advice would you give them? How do they think through that process? And are there any watchouts, right? Things that you would be cons especially concerned about if you were in that role? Yeah, I, I think the challenge here is that the underlying statutes and the underlying policies and, and regulations are the same with respect you know, to 510Ks and with respect to the PMAs, et cetera. What I think I would be watching out for is 
a continuation of the flexibility that CDRH showed with respect to these. And I, I believe that what we're going to see, and I don't have any inside, inside information at this point because I left the agency, but what I believe we're going to see is, and where I think the hint will come, not just the hint, but the actual rubber hitting the road, is in the transition between EUA and sort of outright approval, whichever pathway you you want to take or, or can take. And so if I were sitting in a CEO chair, I would um, very much begin the process of engaging the agency around that transition now. And that, I think, will give a lot of insight into how the agency would be thinking about this. The other part that I think is very important is that having sat inside the agency, from my perspective, there's nobody sitting in a chair thinking, how are we going to devise a way to block innovation? And what I've seen in terms on now on the outside, but also at the inside, uh, companies make mistakes is that not listening to the advice of the career scientists about the pathways. Now, I always think that the career scientists will listen to arguments on the other side, but there are, there are, there are data, there are, there's information that the FDA knows from across multiple applications that a company does not have privy to. And that is going to influence what reviewers will tell the company. And it may seem at times not to make sense, but if the if the company can press for information and perspective without, of course, having CCI released to them, I think they'll get a better understanding of what's being asked. And it's been a very unusual circumstance where not following the roadmap outlined by the agency didn't ultimately lead to, to the right result for the American people. Now, that doesn't mean it's perfect, and that doesn't mean you can't change minds. But I would say both of those things I would pay a lot of attention to. Yeah. As you look at the 510K process and the PMA process, 510K has been under you know, some scrutiny uh, from time to time. And knowing, Steve, you're not there anymore, so you don't have any inside information, obviously. Do you envision any structural changes to the 510K process? Is that something that we should be focused on? Or would you say it, it basically continues to work well? Uh, maybe a tweak here or there. Yeah, the big thing that I I think we need to focus on is this, well, 510K, but also PMA, this application of data, both before and after the process of 510K and and PMA, and where I think we're going to see changes, maybe not so much tweaking, but actually substantial changes in how we use non-randomized. I know everyone uses real-world evidence, real-world data, but I think I think there are great opportunities there, particularly in the private sector with AI and and artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I don't want to overhype it, but ways of sifting through data to remove the biases that are inherent in the collection and the use and in the interpretation of it. But I think particularly on the device side, there are real opportunities. And I think it can make the process more efficient and we can get to the right answer, the true state in a much more efficient and less expensive way. So I would, I think that we'll probably, my guess is we'll be seeing some changes in that area. And remember, Jeff and CDRH used the evidence accelerator, real world evidences approaches, particularly around diagnostics. How were these tests that didn't go through a typical assessment process, how are they working in the real world? And then how can we work with companies to actually make them better? I think there's a lot in there. And I think if I were on the industry side, that's where I'd push. That's, uh, that's great advice. Let me move back to the pandemic kind of as we wrap up, but more from a, a public health standpoint, Steve. And I'm just, just curious of your take, maybe more as a doctor than as the former commissioner of the FDA. 
it seemed like early on there was a period of time when the government and the nation was focused on bending the curve, stopping the spread, whatever the term was that was commonly used, that we wanted to control the virus as best we can and manage through it. And then it feels like if you're sitting on the outside, at some point we shifted into nobody can get it, right? Or we have failed, right? And did you feel that when you were on the inside? And then from the perspective of the public health on the outside, what are your thoughts on that slow the spread, bend the curve versus controlling it completely? Yeah, like most things during the pandemic, this paradigm that you're describing became a political issue. And the divisions that we have in our country really, I think, led to some of the arguments that we had about this. You know, we, we saw it with masks, we saw it with hydroxychloroquine, we saw it with plasma, we saw it with vaccines. And really, at the end of the day, Scott, you know, my personal opinion is masks should never become a political issue, never should have, uh, but did. And it really was sort of a symbol of the divisions that we have. But getting to your question, it also um, gets back to what I mentioned, which is that we were learning about this disease, about this infectious disease as we were going. And I think to me, a really key point was not understanding early on, and no one did, frankly, maybe some did where it started, but no one seemed to have understood this asymptomatic spread of the disease. So whereas we think of it, of COVID like a flu-like illness, in fact, people of all ages, when they're exposed, often get a symptomatic case of the flu, and we don't see the same sort of mortality associated with it. But we had a striking amount of asymptomatic carriers of it. So then the curve really was about trying to stop transmission. What could we do from a public health point of view, mask wearing, hand washing, protecting the, the vulnerable? What could we do that we could institute that would protect the most vulnerable? Because at the end of the day, what I think we have found is that it's almost impossible to say no one gets this disease unless you live in a bubble. And we don't. But what you can do is mitigate the transmission of this disease to those who are most vulnerable. And for example, if you look at what the university did, you did many of them with frequent testing, with just common sense measures, they were successful. Those, those are really good experiments and examples of, of ways that you could, could really stop the transmission when you identified someone with the disease by testing, isolate them so that they can get better and no longer transmitting. So yeah, to say that people getting COVID was a failure was really, in my opinion, the wrong stance to take because we were never going to be victorious in that. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try and certainly doesn't mean we shouldn't protect the vulnerable and prevent transmission the best we can. But particularly in our society where we value individual freedom and choice and where we need more unity and less division, we needed to have had a somewhat different conversation about it. Back to the FDA again, you, you had uh, two interesting issues that came up at the end of your tenure. There was uh, an initiative that came out of the department to essentially term limit some of the high-ranking officials in, in career positions. I think you expressed your uh, view that you didn't agree with that, right? And tell us why that is, uh, Dr. Hahn. Why, why did that trouble you, having been there for a while? So a couple things. One is, I think we all saw the effect of political pressure, potentially on decision-making, and how corrosive to public trust that can be. 
The second thing is the complexity of the decisions that are made at the center level and the need for knowledge and expertise built over the years. My objection to this was not conceptually to term limits. Uh, Throughout my career, I have been a proponent of of term limits. My objection was the fact that we didn't have a robust discussion with all stakeholders, including those who would be most affected and including industry and patient groups. Because I think at the end of the day, the issues that I brought up that are important for the agency to make the right decisions for the American people are those that patients and industry care about. And I still believe that the term limits could be very valuable in a government agency. The question is who gets to make that decision? Who are they beholden to? And you know, ultimately, is there the opportunity for a quid pro quo on the political side about a, a regulatory decision, which we absolutely cannot permit? Yeah, it, it always struck me a, a difficult balance, right? If people are in senior jobs inside government, but they have a sense of tenure, right? You can't do anything to move me. I'm in charge of every decision I make. If you question it, you're wrong, right? It feels like we shouldn't be there, right? But also uh, moving people out in a way that seems political is a difficult thing to do. It seems like a really hard thing to balance. It can be done. Now, you know, at FDA, you know, the commissioner does have the authority and therefore, obviously, the secretary did uh, because of the authority the FDA comes from the secretary to, to remove a center director. But, but you're right from a cultural point of view from and, and certainly in the middle of a pandemic. You know, changes in leadership have to be done for very good reasons. But I, I don't disagree with, with where, and I, I know that sounds kind of squeamish, but I, I, I agree, let's put it that way in an active way, that you really have to have accountability. This also gets to another issue that I, I brought up publicly, which is the independence of the agency from the political process and whether FDA should be more like the Federal Reserve than CMS. I also think there needs to be balance there because uh, an agency can't be rogue. An agency has to have oversight and has to have accountability, particularly when you regulate 20% of what consumers spend on on medical products. Um, It's such a huge impact for the health and welfare and economy of the U.S. But I do think that we've learned some lessons, and I am very much in favor of us having a vigorous discussion about an independent FDA. Yeah, so you think there should be an independent FDA, right, Steve, essentially? And the FBI is an interesting example, I've always thought right? Because the FBI director has a 10-year term, which oftentimes spans multiple presidencies, right? And uh, do you think a model like that might be more effective for the agency and for the public health more broadly? Yeah. And I I don't want to get into the number of years, but I do think it would be. And I, I do think that would provide some continuity and also some impetus for change. I think everyone in the agency recognizes that COVID has um, highlighted some of the things at the agency that, that need, to, need to, to move in a different direction. I'm confident that the career folks feel that way as well and that we'll see some of that. Um, but I think having that sort of term for an FDA commissioner and potentially even for center directors would be very healthy and positive for American public health. Well, I think we've uh, reached the end of our time today, Dr. Hahn. Thank you for taking so much time to talk with us today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Let me also say thank you for your service to the country in a critical time of our nation's history. The FDA is a very, very tough agency to run. I'm sure it was rewarding for you as well. But I also know not many people want to take on that challenge, and even fewer wanted to take it on 
uh, in the previous administration. The fact that you were willing to do that, we should all stand up and applaud that and thank you for your, I think, historic leadership during a very, very difficult time. So thank you for that and thank you for joining us here today. Thank you, Scott. It was a real pleasure and honor to be here today, and I appreciate those kind words. It was an honor to serve the American people. For those of you listening, thanks for tuning in. For more episodes, visit advamed.org slash podcast or subscribe to MedTech POV on your favorite streaming platform. Until next time, this is Scott Whitaker.